Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Hockey cast. My name is Dimitri Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Allison Luca. And Allison, what's going on? Oh my gosh, I'm great. How are you? I'm so happy to be here. I'm great too. I feel like um, I think this is your third time on the show. I want to say I think it's it's like uh, it's the third part of the trilogy. Like the first time I had you on <laughs> was during the summer when we were trying to figure out what the Blue Jackets were going to do with Artemi Panarin and Sergei Bobrovsky and their impending free agency and how the season would play out. Then I had you on at the deadline last year after they kind of pushed all their chips in and we were breaking down the trades and their decision to do so. And then now we're at kind of the fallout and how this Blue Jackets team all of a sudden is sort of the talk of the league. I mean, a 15 and two and four stretch is going to do that, but I think there's so many uh, just delicious layers to kind of peel back and get into here. And before we started recording, you and I were, uh, I asked you about it, what's going on right now. And then you were just like, I'm trying to make sense of it, but I have no idea how to do so. And I guess that's not the most compelling uh, podcasting. If that's the route, we go, but I feel like, uh, you know, in the next hour or so, you and I will be able to work through this. <laughs> For sure. I mean, there, I certainly can see uh, what's happening um, and have thoughts. It's just, it's just incredible that they've been able to do this. I mean, not only because of the lack of expectations, but just how this season started out so rough for this group. Then they get demolished by injuries. And now to do what they're doing, it's Every night, it's just kind of a different story of, of random weird pieces they put together to, to keep this win streak going and now hold on to a wild card spot. It's insane. Yeah, no, and I think I'm of two minds of it because on the one hand, I certainly uh, can't pat myself on the back by any means or take credit <laughs> because when I was doing my preseason projections, I, like many others in our industry, got sucked into the allure of what the devils did this summer and so i even picked them ahead of the blue jackets sure. at the same time though i was uh i would consider myself in the camp of sort of optimists about the blue jackets because i think that it was the idea was a bit overblown that you know with panarin bobrovsky duchene even Duzing, the zingo walking out the door and them not really having any assets in return to show for that as uh free agents that walked away I thought it was overblown from the perspective of it wasn't like this team was necessary or this franchise was, you know, starting from square one. I mean, you've got a 21 year old number one center. You've got a 25 and 22 year old first pairing defenseman. You've got an infrastructure in a place and I think a good system of players in their early to mid twenties on the way up of varying degrees that they've drafted and kind of internally developed. And so packed that in with the financial flexibility of, you know, all these players with big cap hits leaving that gives you more room to play around with in the future. I thought the team was certainly going to take a step back from a standings perspective, and I didn't see them competing for a playoff spot as the way they are, but I didn't think it was fully doom and gloom and like, okay, well, they went all in and now they're completely starting from square one because the, you know, the, the seeds of this were certainly in place. Yeah, for sure. And, and I, I was actually a little bit more optimistic. I thought that they would going into the season. I thought that they would keep 
it interesting. I think what what I was concerned about early is, you know, the I'm with you. The defense is obviously, in my opinion, one of the tops in the league. I mean, if you have Seth Jones and Zach Wierenski, come on. <laughs> I mean, they're right. just they're just elite. Um, and but I thought I thought the offense wouldn't take as much of a hit as it did early on. So that concerned me. Um, it, it felt like this team just could not get a bounce. I mean, I, I wrote on this earlier in the season. They had, I think going back, they had the third worst shooting percentage ever since the the last lockout, ever. Like, that's insane. Yeah. So they had bad luck. And then, you know, the one thing I had thought would start stronger than it did was the play of Elvis Merzlikens. Eunice Corposalo was strong, but we all thought Elvis was going to come over and be quite good, and, and his start was, was quite rough. So <laughs> yeah. um, my expectations took a hit, and now here we are. They're, they're kind of where I said they were going to be before the season started, and now I have to wrap my head around that once again. <laughs> I wonder, you know, not I'm not trying to galaxy brain this by any means and make the argument that uh, a coach like John Torella would not want to coach Artemi Panarin, because certainly whenever you can have playmakers and game breakers and skill of that level you want it but i just think from like a sort of not storytelling perspective but sort of a narrative perspective of like being able to um relish the opportunity of kind of being this sort of underdog where it's like all right i don't necessarily have the firepower or the personnel to play this kind of run and gun fun back and forth style like we're seeing the colorado avalanche and autonomy police play instead we're really going to hone in and tightly craft this uh defensively responsible kind of uh you know chain of events where it's like every player is linked and you just have this depth and and it feels like there isn't even really like a top line i know that basically whoever Pierre-Luc Dubois is playing you can <laughs> kind of consider that the top line but it does feel like this is like uh an 18 player unit as opposed to you know your traditional first line first parents on and so forth and so i think from like getting that kind of buy-in and you even heard um on the broadcast recently how they're talking about how you know with the goalies with elvis starting to play and then most recently against the rangers it's like i think there's a, a certain accountability or a certain um level of the players not trying harder but it's like all right we're we kind of realize what the perception is of us around the league and how people think this season's going to go and instead we're going to double down on this defensive identity and do what we do well and focus on that and let everything else play out yeah, I, I totally agree. I, you know, and I, like you said, this is not to say that John Tortorella didn't love and appreciate every second of Artemi Panarin, but we, you know, we can go back to that video of his pregame speech before game one against Tampa. And, and what was his whole message? His whole message was nobody is talking about you. Everybody's talking about Tampa. No one's giving you a chance. I think that that style is, is what he connects with the most. That's that's a motivator for him, I think, individually. So it's easy for him to narrate that to his team. And, and I think this is a group of players that connect with it, too. I mean, uh, some of these guys, went, Nick Foligno, Cam Atkinson, David Savard, they were in Columbus when this team was not good at all. Um, they know what it's like to hear you're going to Columbus and they're like, ugh, you know. I mean, Nick Felino talks about that. He was like, well, I was ready for a fresh start, but also Columbus, question mark, I don't even know where that is. So I think it connects with this group too. And then And then you look at the elite talent. What's cool about this defense, like you said, this defensive identity that they've connected with is that they're just not locking down old school, old New Jersey left-wing lock style. <laughs> they're preventing and then pushing the other way. Um, yeah. And they have the horses to do that defensively. And that's what I think is really cool about when they're on their game, watching them play, it's it's really fun to watch. Well, I think there's a bit of a um, chicken and egg situation here I want to get into because, you know, the goaltending itself, especially since Elvis got some of those early season jitters or, or just uh, sort of transitioned to a different league and a different rink size and different shooting talent out of the way um, and took over as the number one when Jonas Corposalo went down. I mean, all of his numbers are through the roof. I don't need to recite them here. Um, pretty much he saved everything humanly imaginable <laughs> and uh, has been the best goalie in the league since then and, and he's right up there for the season now which is remarkable considering the slow start and the seven goal against debut that he's right up there with the Tristan Jerry's and Darcy Kemper's and pretty much every single metric and on the one hand I think 
he certainly played well and he's been every bit as advertised from the sort of fun, uh, infectious energy, the celebrations, the excitement. And that's something you don't often say, especially about a goalie. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, when you dive deeper into the numbers, it really does feel like, and it's very fitting for this Columbus Blue Jackets team where it's tough to sort of, um, separate one from the other when it comes to the goaltending and the defense in front of them. And I know people are going to roll their eyes when we talk about shot blocking and for good reason mm-hmm. and, and and you know you understand that if you're constantly just having to fully rely on shot blocking and that's all you do it typically means you don't have the puck and that's not a good thing and and i think we all know that by now but what is interesting about this blue jacket team and their sort of five on five resume and portfolio is in terms of coursey just pure shot attempts they're like 48 percent or so i think and yeah, they don't yeah. look like a very good team then you go to fenwick and you remove those block shots and they're suddenly better then you go on to what's actually going towards the net and they're better and then you go into high danger it's very reminiscent of these barry trots islanders teams i think of the stars now over the past year and a half or so and these kind of grade a defensive teams in the league where there's a pretty clear concerted effort of limiting what the opposition does and making life easier on your goalies. And so I think those two kind of go hand in hand where the goaltending has certainly been good and especially for how much they're paying as opposed to what example went out of the door this summer with Dubrovsky. <laughs> it's a clear net win for them. But on the other hand, it does feel like what the Blue Jackets have built here under John Tortorella is like a top five-ish environment in terms of making goalies look good, I think. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, and with all respect to Matisse Kivlenix, who played last uh, the other night in New York, you know, that that's a perfect example. This is a kid who hasn't even really been able to hold on to a spot in the AHL. You know, he was going back and forth between the A and the ECHL last season. Um, and, and when he started, I think we all kind of, <laughs> those of us who've been following the team, we're all kind of like, oh, boy, oh, boy, here we go. Um, but I think you're absolutely right is that this defense has to clamp down. And, you know, even when we look at the expected goal numbers for this team, um, and when I talk about this team to people, I say, don't, don't get fooled. Like, just like you said, don't get fooled by the quantity. Don't look at those measures. Look at the quality. And like, and they have hovered right around top three to top five, um, this entire season. Now, what's really interesting to me, to your point of chicken and egg, is that, in this last little stretch, and this is what Tortorella has been kind of warning about in some of his comments, that defense has loosened up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Merzlikens has faced quite a high degree of quality against compared to what this team usually gives up. So they, you know, there are, and it, it's, it's hard, right? Because with what we do when we're trying to analyze the game, take take the five nothing win over New Jersey. Fans are ecstatic. Five nothing. That's insane, right? But mm-hmm. the team played terribly, <laughs> yep. and and lost the volume battle and the quality battle. And that's a game where Merzlikens really did truly shine and take that game for them. So I think you're right. I think that this is the perfect environment for a young more green goaltender to get their footing and perform well, but it's also a hard way to play and this team can't forget it and they have to keep playing that way. Um, they can't, as, as John Tortorella would say, they can't let it get too good to them <laughs> um, and not focus because the goaltenders do need that long term, I think. Yeah, no, there's been games there. I think even the uh, the game against the Hurricanes that they won at home recently. Where, oh, yeah. You know, they're clearly the second best team on the ice, but oh, we yeah. know that when you have the better goaltender or the goaltender that stands on his head a little bit, it can make the big difference. But yeah, I mean, we were just diving into the numbers. I, I was a little bit surprised to see that, you know, just to throw some metrics at you, like at five and five, um, just 52.4% of the attempts they surrender actually make it on net. And that's the second best behind the Islanders. So that kind of shows what they're actually giving up in terms of letting it go through compared to what they're blocking. Just 15.5% of the attempts they give up are high danger trances. And that's the second best. And so it certainly lends itself into that. And I guess, you know, when you're pivoting from that into a bigger picture discussion or something that fans of different teams that are listening can take from this, I do think it is kind of instructive because, you know, let's take Bobrovsky here, for example, where he's clearly in a much inferior environment in terms of what Mm -hmm. he has to face and what the Panthers kind of give up in terms of their system, where they're bottom 10 in terms of how much they give up in terms of high danger and expected goals. And it's like, yeah, no goalie's probably going to look their best there. But I guess it kind of gets into this sort of philosophical discussion of, you know, we know that goalies similar to running backs in football, it's like you don't want to invest long term in them or premium resources because the 
position is so volatile and we're not sure what the performance is going to look like in future years. But I just think from even like a shorter term perspective, when you're looking at one, two, three year deals, it's, it's kind of tricky to just pay a goalie like Bobrovsky, for example, and say, we're going to be an offensive team or take it Freddie Anderson right now and his struggles in Toronto and say, you know, we're going to hope you're going to be the ultimate equalizer and kind of bail us out when you can. And we're going to try to score as many goals and kind of overlook the defensive side of things. And we often see that that's, it's great and it's exciting and it's fun to watch, but we just know that goalies typically cannot uh, shoulder that load or, or make up that big of a difference. Whereas if you have a system in front of them, you can really get away with paying ELCs and under a million dollars for Elvis Merzlikens and, and, you know, 1.25 or whatever for, you know, Corpus Allo and make it work because of the structure in front of them. So I know there's a give and take from like, clearly the way Columbus plays might limit how much they generate offensively because they are so dialed in on their own zone. But at the same time, it feels like if you're constructing a team, having that system is much more important than actually just kind of hoping that you're going to pay a goalie. And just because he's a star, he'll be able to make up for everything that's lacking in front of them. Absolutely. And, and I actually just did a, a piece on Bobrovsky last week, looking at this and, you know, all these metrics that we just threw about too with, um, Columbus, you're right. Florida's on. I mean, this is the worst defense in terms of shots against, quality against that Bobrovsky has ever played behind in his career. Um, so you couple that with adjusting to a new system. It's not just that they're not performing; they're, they play a different style, they play a different setup. So it, it that affects. You know, I talked to some goaltending analysts because I don't think any of us understand goaltending enough unless we've really studied or played the position. Right. You know, they said that the, that really affects your ability to trust the play in front of you, which then causes you to cheat. And now you you really aren't at your true capacity as the last line of defense. Right. You're you're trying to over anticipate. You overcommit. You get a lot of backdoor tap-ins, things like that. So I totally agree. You've you've got to be careful here in terms of what you expect a goaltender to do, because we, we all watch the game. We all watch and go, oh my gosh, look at that wide open net. I mean, it's a incredibly hard job <laughs> and yep. they, they can't make up for the lack of five players play in front of them. Yeah, no, they certainly can. I guess from Columbus perspective, they're, I'm sure they're sort of relishing this season they're having right now and they're they're all in on it from this perspective. But one of the questions they are going to have moving forward is, especially with such a small sample uh, with Elvis as an RFA and looking for a new deal this summer, same with Corpus Allo, where what route they're going to go with those contracts, considering that I think they're quietly building this amazing goalie factory pipeline where <laughs> I think any any sort of evaluator or goalie uh, purist you talk to uh, would look at a guy like Daniel Tarasov, for example, who yes, they drafted 86th yes. in, uh, in 2017, and ah. they'd view him as the goalie of the future, just purely on like raw tools. And then even uh, the Finnish goalie, Vaini Venelainen, or however you yep. pronounce his name, yep, that they drafted it. in 2018, like he's doing well in the AHL now in his first year overseas. And so he looks like he could be promising as well. Well, and so, um, you know, it's a different dilemma because I don't think regardless of how well Elvis plays, he's not going to get himself into the same tax bracket as Sergei Bobrovsky and where it was much easier for them to make that decision. But it will be fascinating. And it also it's like just if we're talking about copycat leagues beyond all the jokes about just loading up on Latvian goalies. It's like <laughs> clearly Columbus is, is doing something here where you can just rattle off four or five guys uh, that pretty much every team in the league would love to have in their system. And they've gotten all of them in the third or fourth round of drafts. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think it, it's funny. I, I look like I got something right for once. You know, I've been touting this goaltending pipeline for a while as the strongest part of their their prospect system. And, you know, it, like you say, people are going to go, oh, we're going to do this. But this pipeline is years in the making, going back to Ian Clark having connections to even find Daniil Tarasov. I mean, if for those who follow um, that deep in the draft and follow goaltending, you know that this kid was literally injured his entire draft year. So no one was even looking at him. And Ian Clark, who was with Columbus at the time, had the connections to have known how this kid played in the small town in Russia and was able to really keep tabs on his recovery, really get a good read on his current health and ability to recover. And and they were able to steal him away. And Vevelina, and you know, another one just knowing the knowing the game, knowing when to pick the player. You can't build a pipeline, just like you can't build a pipeline of forwards or defensemen overnight either. You know, this takes some time. What I'm really curious about, too, 
you know, everyone's like, well, what are you going to do? How, who's, it, this is a controversy. For me, unless there's an incredible trade offer on the table for one of these two goaltenders at the end of this season, I doubt this is going to be a, a trade deadline move because we all know that's a really difficult thing to put into your team at the deadline as a goaltender. Unless there's an incredible offer for these guys, why not just take load management strategy by the horns and keep these two around? You can trade them next year, take some time to figure it out. Corpusalo earned the starting net, but Merzlikens has certainly made a case for himself now too. I think as long as you're upfront and honest with these two when Corpusalo comes back, and that's a hallmark of John Tortorella's coaching, to say hey, we're going to go two games, two games, two games, two games, back and forth between the two of you or whatever they decide so there's not a lot of concern and worry about when am I going to play next. Why not keep these two guys healthy and just let them be at their best? If they can keep playing like this, this is a team that's going to have postseason games, and we know how much it can hurt to have a tired goaltender. So I would love to see this club explore some of the possible advantages of load management because they can afford to keep these two around unless there's just, like I said, some incredible trade deal on the table come this summer. Well, yeah, especially with the system you have in front of them where you can feel comfortable, not necessarily saying that, you know, goalies don't matter and that anyone you put in there is going to have the exact right. same performance, but right. it, um, it increases your floor, I guess you could say. And, and both guys are RFAs, as we mentioned. And so it's different from last year, for example, where even if you think that they're playing themselves into a payday that you might think is too pricey or, or you think just because of that pipeline we mentioned, you don't want to fully commit long term this summer, you still have them and their rights. And so you can get creative with that and, and make it work work as well this summer so it's a great position to be in and, and i think uh you know there's so much that goes in there it was funny i tweeted last night after the rangers game about <laughs> sort of that performance and the tweet went a little viral and it got a lot of feedback in terms of people giving credit to Manny legacy to yarmo kekalainen to john tortorella to the defense to the goalies and i guess that is what is so ultimately fascinating about the goaltending position and, and what can be kind of blessing and occurs a double-edged sword for analysts yeah. like you and i where it's like it's tough to know how how to strip all of those individual parts and isolate the factors and go, okay, this is the reason why it does feel like in a lot of these cases, um, it can, based on your perspective, you could attribute it to one thing or another and be equally right. And so I guess in Columbus's case, um, it doesn't really matter because they do have that humming and they clearly are doing something right. But in terms of other teams that are looking at it, it's it's an interesting problem to try to kind of figure out of like, how do we replicate this and how do we have this um in our system as well, where we can draft, develop like this and make the goalies look as good as they are with the system in front of them. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, it, it, we all, we all laugh too, because I, particularly with these blue jackets, when they were struggling, everyone was touting out the, well, you know, St. Louis was in last place and that, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. How many times has that happened? Right. You know, it's, it, it's almost too easy to, to copycat. I think it really comes down to, defining your identity and building to that, which is why I think we don't necessarily take enough time to pause and understand the ripple effects of when there are front office changes, when there are significant significant overhauls in terms of the coaching staff. Because you're right, Columbus can win this way because they have all the right parts in all the right places. You take Elvis Merzlikens, you put him in half of the other NHL team's nets, you're not going to get the same results. Same with Sergei Bobrovsky. If you bring Sergei Bobrovsky back to Columbus right now, what's he doing, right? So you're, you're spot on and that you can't just say, go get young goaltenders and have a strong defense you have to look at this holistically and, and even like you said the game last night you know Matisse Kivlenix kept that team in the game the first two periods and then the team in front of him kept them in the game and won the game in the third period right. so there's even those nuances too and it, it, when when we see teams start to copycat I almost feel like that's a little lazy because it's it's so much bigger than that it's it's looking at every aspect of play deciding who you want to be and then building, drafting, developing, recruiting all of that to that identity so that it works. Otherwise, it's just not the concept doesn't work in and of itself being a concept. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a whole uh, kind of there's a lot of moving parts, I guess. Right. And, you, and if you if you pull out one of them, it's kind of like a Jenga thing where it can all fall right. apart. But, you know, let's talk a bit about Tortorella here. And I think it's such a fascinating topic because I've kind of done 
a full 180 here on him where when I started this podcast, when, and it kind of coincided with him taking over from Todd Richards and there was this sort of stigma of him being Mm -hmm. kind of like a, you know, rah, rah in your face, uh, (laughs) old school hockey guy, you know, is known for the fiery tantrums and especially coming off the Vancouver gig where pretty much everything that could have gone wrong could have. And I think even he'd admit that he would do that significantly differently if he could kind of go back in time. Um, it was fair, I think, to evaluate him off of that. But now that we have this tenure, this sample under the Blue Jackets where he's clearly done, I think, a masterful job of squeezing the most out of what he's been given, especially when you look at this season, for example, acknowledging that when you lose that much offensive talent, it's going to be tough to keep playing that way. And so you have to make adjustments that fit your personnel. And I think whether he's always wanted to do it this way or not, it's kind of lined up where now this team can play that kind of depth, speed, uh, structured game that goes well with their forecheck and creating offense from defense and really focusing on on the play in your own end. And, you know, it was kind of crazy to, to look at the fact that, and this is a testament to the success he's had, is that he's currently uh, standing as the fourth longest tenured coach behind it's just crazy. John Cooper, Paul Maurice, and Jeff Blashaw. It feels like yesterday, really, that he took over for this job. But um, I guess I'm, I'm kind of curious to get into that with you of like, this sort of journey we've been on with Tortorella in our (laughs) lives and how much has changed. And I think, you know, you obviously interacting with him more and covering the team more closely can speak to this better, but it does feel like there is, I'm not sure how much of it, um, is reality and how much of it is just like a nice narrative for someone like myself to latch on to, but it does feel like for whatever reason, and he would certainly, I think never um, in blatant terms admit this publicly, but it does feel like behind the scenes, there has been kind of an acceptance of like how the game has changed or, you know, his own evolution as a coach in terms of uh, communication, in terms of uh, pushing different buttons and sort of adjusting from the coach he was back in the day. I'm not sure how much of that is just a, a, a neat narrative because the team is successful or how much of it is is reality in and testament to his own evolution as a coach. Yeah, I, you know, and it is funny. He has actually talked about it. Um, he, he, you know, I, my personal opinion was always that when he came to Columbus, he was on a little bit of a redemption tour himself. He, he would have done Vancouver differently. I completely agree with you. I don't think as fiery and as devil may care as he is, I don't think he he's thrilled with how that went down and the, the YouTube videos that are out there and that exist. Um, but I think he was on a redemption tour to begin with. And, and since he's come to Columbus, he has said things like, this game is changing and I need to change with it. And this game isn't like it used to be anymore. And for a long time, my position on him was that he was actually quite a progressive coach. He just didn't say the things that that people like you and I say. You know, he he would tease about analytics, but he wanted an active defense. He wanted a five man unit. He all he created as close as we get to positionless hockey with Zach Wierenski and Seth Jones calling them rovers and asking mm-hmm. them to just do whatever they want to do. So I think, you know, he, he, he was the first coach, I'll never forget, going back to his first series against Pittsburgh. He was the first coach, and then Mike Sullivan followed suit because it came off of a project those two had actually done that started talking about the value of scoring chances over shot volume. This is John Tortorella. <laughs> and so um, it, it was crazy. And, it, and what's been interesting to me this year specifically is that more so than any other year, he has talked about how, you know, there are so many rookies on this team. He has talked about specifically how he went into this year knowing that he had to keep himself in check. That he couldn't be even as fiery as Tortorella 2.0 has been in the past. And and the players have said for the most part, he, he has done that. He knows he can't push these young guys and players in, of today's age like he did in the past. And he's really focused on it. He brings it up of his own volition quite a few times. And what's been intriguing to me, while he's always, like I said, always talked about progressive hockey concepts and he's talked about measures and metrics that he either creates or tracks on his own that are different than the quote unquote traditional box score type stats. He's finally starting to openly talk about how he's learning more and using the specific word analytics. Mm. Um, 
he and and you know I always someday before he leaves Columbus I need to ask him what his first experience with quote unquote analytics was because I have this impression that like someone came in with this like two inch stack of paper you know with just all numbers and was like here this explains everything and uh, that certainly wouldn't go over well with many people um, so I think he had a really bad perception of what they were um, but I. Re- really like how he talks about them now. He talks about finding numbers that he can understand that relate to how he wants his team to play and applying them. Um, he's talking, he's openly saying, I'm trying to learn them more. I'm trying to use them more. And, and again, he'll couch it and say intel, in, intelligently. Um, but he, you know, I think the peak moment for me this year has been when he said on the record pregame in Vegas that plus minus is the most useless stat. So yes. <laughs> we're getting there, people. We're getting there. But yeah, it's he's he's really he's so much more interesting and normal than the outside perception suggests. And I get how he got that. He comes by it honestly. Um, but he's really one of the most fascinating individuals I've had the opportunity to cover. Yeah, it does feel like a lot of these quotes that you see from him are he's basically describing concepts that we are talking about online, totally. but he says totally. them in hockey speak or like kind yep. of layman's terms. And then I guess this is the tantalizing part because I get it. Like, listen, he's been around the game for a long time and he comes from a different era. And so you're never going to get that full buy. And there's going to, and I think it's a healthy skepticism and sort of asking mm-hmm. questions and, and wondering whether there's different ways to accomplish the same result. And I think that's great. But then, you know, it does feel like it kind of sometimes gets couched with like, a, a random throwaway comment that also gives a lot of ammunition to the um, anti-analytics crowd as well. And it feels like it's like kind of on both sides of the fence where it's like, if it is a real like Rorschach test really, right? Where it's like, <laughs> if you come into it and you are pro analytics, you can read a John Tortorella quote and be like, Oh, this guy gets it. Or if you are an old school, uh, you know, physicality trumps all plus minus is the greatest measure of a player's performance. You can also, uh, find like little nuggets in there from Tortorella press conferences as well. And so I guess he's, he's doing a good job of, uh, increasing his <laughs> approval rating just by really kind of, uh, you know, saying stuff that both sides, both sides of the, are argument or I guess conversation would like. Yeah. And I I think that that's that exact kind of lever, if you will, that measure is finally starting to shift because I I, I totally agree with you on like the couching and the, the slight little digs particularly in the past couple of weeks, that has stopped from him. Um, and I think, you know, he even earlier this year, it was right around Thanksgiving. I'll never forget because I remember what I was eating as we were talking about it when we were sitting in the, in the room. He was talking about reading studies on the right time to pull a goaltender, hmm. right? So, you know, this is, he's he's becoming more and more open about these ideas. And I think now his his couching and his critiques are becoming more about make sure this stuff is understandable and relevant, which look, I'm, I have a hundred percent time for, I totally agree with him. Um, and it's he, the, the digs are gone. The, well, you know how I feel about analytics Th- right. Those were still around at the start of the season, but they have really fallen off. And I think part of what's helped him is like I said, he had a, when he brought in this active defense methodology, he wanted to track how frequently the first play out of the defensive zone was north-south versus east-west. He basically didn't want the defense relying on the D-to-D pass overly uh, more so than they should. So he had the team start tracking the percentage of first plays that were north-south versus east-west. And he he gets that every game. And I think that when he can see that and he can see the effectiveness of this, he has Brad Shaw, who's a very intelligent coach as his assistant, who brings in a lot of tracking ideas and measurability ideas. And then he sees that the concepts can be measured and the concepts are working on the ice. I think it'd be, he's not an idiot. <laughs> I mm. think it's important for him to to see that what they want the team to do is happening and working. Um, and, and that cemented for him. And I, what I commend him on, it's funny, the, uh, the athletic player poll came out. And, you know, of course, one of the questions was, do you care about analytics? Mm. And a lot of the players said no. And I was like, I, I don't care if players care about analytics. Yeah. And I think, I think John Tortorella is spot on in that. There are a couple key things that he puts up in the room um, that he and he puts them up primarily for discussion, not as like a report card type idea, but an education and a discussion um, with his players. But he's very careful not 
to overload his team with information. He talks about that all the time. And I think also that is a, that is one of the benefits of how he's entered into this new age of hockey, if you will, is that he's not saying, ooh, this is so cool. Here, let's all look at 300 things together. And here, players, let's look at this too. He's very cautious on that end of it. And, and I really respect that in how he's coaching this team as well. Yeah, no, I think framing goes a long way. There was a player that uh, was sourced as a, a player from the Atlantic Division. I wonder who that was, but uh, they made a good joke about how it's like you know he just like it's kind of like his accountant where he just leaves it for other people to yeah. get it better than they do. And it's like that's perfectly fair, I think. You know, and totally. it's always weird to me when people run to ask players about their shot share and stuff like that, and then clearly the player as as a jock who has so a million different things on their agenda and prioritizing in terms of getting ready for games and training and so on and so forth is like you know quickly dismisses it and then you point to that as a as an excuse that analytics doesn't actually matter and it's it's so silly to me but you know i think like a great example of that would be and you know not to say that Torrella has done this but in terms of um sort of that message or um illustrating points that could potentially um be of utility to players or kind of show progress is you know if you go on like michael mccurdy's uh website for example on hockey ways and you just kind of look at the heat maps of this blue jacket mm-hmm team and what they're giving up and uh, generating themselves at 515 last year versus this year, for example, it was amazing to me when I was preparing for this podcast, looking at it from the perspective of like, basically, both in terms of for and against, they've eliminated everything in front of the net. And it's like, it went from this like red blob uh, to just completely dark blue. And it's like, nothing's happening there. And, and that really, I mean, you could see that from, you know, the, uh, the chances and the expected goals and so on and so forth. But that's like a, a picture, which is very clearly easy to identify and take the, uh, you know, the, the me- takeaway message from it for a player. And so stuff like that, I feel like could go a long way in terms of, um, having a succinct point that could go a long way in terms of either hammering a, ho- a point home where the team needs to change their performance or sort of showing them like, yeah, you know, the things we're doing are leading to these positive results and we need to keep playing this way. And I, so I think that's the important stuff, not like looking at whether a player is a 49% or a 51.5% shot share guy. Right. And, you know, it's funny. I I just did a piece with um, Brad Shaw developed actually going back to his days with the blues and hitch had developed. He calls it a puck touch sheet. Mm -hmm. Um, But really what it's measuring is is transition game, the transition game up the ice, not defensive play, but offensively transitioning the puck. And he's worked through it. They're just going to start introducing that sheet to the team. Um, I'm not sure if they're going to do it before the break or after the break, but they're about to introduce it to the team, but not only because, and again, we speak about how this team has to play. And this is what Bradshaw brought it to John Tortorella. John Tortorella kind of took it in, made some tweaks to it and said, okay, this is good. Let's use this. You know, he saw that it matched how this team needed to play. Again, that active defense, minimal time in your own zone, moving the puck with control to create offense going North, as he likes to say. And what Bradshaw did to it too, and, and both of the coaches have talked about this. They're like, what we like about this is that it gives each player a score. Again, it's not some crazy random percentage. It, it's a score. They basically gamified it for the players because as we know, these guys are all super competitive. Right. So they've gamified it for them. And at the same time, even as I was talking to Brad Shaw about it, they are both, both he and John Tortorella are keenly, keenly aware that this is still not the end-all be-all. This is not the, this is now how we evaluate you there. This is how we evaluate this part of the game. And, you know, Bradshaw said, this is a, this is the kind of thing where Seth Jones and Zach Wierenski are always going to be top of the list, but players like, and you know, other players who aren't, and they're not supposed to be big pieces of that transition game aren't. And that's why we look at them in other ways and talk to them about other things. So I think it's really interesting to watch how they're tying what they measure to to what they want this team to do on the ice. Yeah, that's a great point. I think sometimes we can get lost in like uh, everything gets the internet, everything gets taken to the extreme, obviously, but it's like, you know, speaking in absolutes where it's like, (laughs) and I think that's where players, there is a lot of pushback. I think there'd be a lot, it'd be a lot more receptive if you, you know, were a player and you weren't worried. I I know, um, 
I forget where it was. I think it was on the point hockey where they had an interview with uh, David Perron recently and they were kind of talking about this stuff and Perron was actually citing that he's like seen metrics in the past that made him look bad and and, and that's sure. why he was upset about it. And certainly if you care, you know, if it's going to be used against you in arbitration or in terms of contract negotiations, I can see why you'd be upset with it. Whereas it's going to be tough to, with most teams to leverage uh, good underlying numbers into a massive payday with a, with a team, right? For the most part. So it kind of feels like it's taking more off the table than adding for individual players. But I think if you mm-hmm. view it from that perspective of, um, you know, it's just one piece of the puzzle, but there's value in it in terms of if you make adjustments here or there, or you're doing this well, keep doing that, or or this is a kind of part of your game you're lacking. And maybe if you do a little tweak here or there, it's going to lead to much better results. I think there'd be a much bigger buy. And I think we're eventually going to get there, especially with, um, you know, when the conversation shifts a bit more, when public tracking data becomes more readily available, and we can start discussing that, because I'm not sure if uh, if you've given it much thought, but I know like there, you do a lot of manually tracking yourself and you're <laughs> writing about what the Blue Jackets do. But what I'm really growing fascinated by, and you know, when you watch a team like Columbus, I think it has a lot of credence to it. Is like, I think the next one of the next big market inefficiencies is going to be like better quantifying um, events that don't necessarily show up in. Mm-hmm final end product goals, for example, because there's so many little plays that happen that might not lead to a goal that might not ultimately get accredited to that player. But in terms of like loose puck recoveries, you know, neutral zone or even defensive zone, um, you know, contact with your stick on the puck, stuff like that. Like, I think um, that's going to go a long way in terms of um, making players look better and then players in turn buying into it from that perspective. So I'm really curious to see how that discussion is going to shift as more data becomes available. Oh yeah. And it's funny. I was talking to one of the blue jackets actually about another player that he knows well, and we were just, you know, talking and, and ironically he and I always joke about, you know, Oh, the analytics. And again, it doesn't bother me. Um, but he was saying how he had read something about this other player that he's really close with, who's more of a defensively skilled player. And he said, Hey, I read this thing in it. You know, it was really cool to see. Basically he said it was really cool to see that there are measures that make a quote unquote quote, non-offensive player look good, right? And I think that's that's right to your point is that, and and I get this again, it it is not these guys' jobs to sit and pour over data day in and day out. That is not what makes them better players. And so I think it's easy for them to come to a conclusion that these are just more numbers that tie to goals and to purely offense. And to your point, don't measure all the things that they believe and often know contribute ultimately to success. And when they can start to see, and we know how much hockey data is still even in its infancy, but when they can start to see that, no, we are interested in other areas of the game, we are trying to look at value in realistic and holistic ways, not just offensive ways. I agree with you. I think that, again, they don't have to accept it, but I think they'll see that it's quote unquote not out to get them, if you will. And it's <laughs> it's not it's not necessarily a bad thing. And again, if they still think it's a bad thing, I don't care. But yes. um, I think that they are starting to see, some of them are, that we're at least trying to look at, like you said, like even when I'm tracking stuff, I'm like, gosh, it reveals things to me. Even though I already know the questions I want to answer, I, I, it reveals even more to me. So much more value I see in certain players. And I just think opening those doors is just going to be fantastic um, to really understand what makes teams work. Well, yeah, think about like, you know, to my puck retrievals example, let's say we get that data and first off, you can identify who's good at it and who's not and actually quantify it with numbers. But then you also have a sample to prove that it's actually like a repeatable skill, which I do think it is for the most part. Like it would make sense that uh, certain player types would be better at kind of not necessarily being gritty or so on, but like kind of having that motor. I think of like a Zach Hyman type, for example, with Toronto, who does a lot of the dirty work or let's Mm -hmm. even say like a Boone Jenner, for example, Mm -hmm. with, with Columbus. I think, and you can prove that that's actually a legitimate skill. Like 
that's something that, you know, if you're not playing in a prime spot, like if you're Zach Hyman and you're playing full time like he is now with Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews, you're probably going to get a lot of secondary assists just from tracking the puck down on the forecheck. And so I think that's going to lead to offensive production. But if you're playing on Columbus's third line and you necessarily aren't playing with finishers, um, that might not, that skill might not be reflected in your point total, but it still might be a valuable for like just keeping the puck away from your own net basically. And so I think in that case, um, there's going to be a lot of value to identifying those players and actually being able to put a number to the face. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's so exciting to see, to think, like I said, you know, even little things like one of the penalty kill goals that the blue jackets have this year is, is the amount of time the power play spends in the zone. And they're they're actually overachieving in terms of their goal. They don't want the power play in the zone for more than ten seconds at a time. And the majority of of the, of the possessions is happening in that way. Now, of course, it took me measuring every time the puck crosses a blue line. Which, if you want to lose your sanity, please join me. Um, but it, there's so much to see: puck retrievals, pressuring as a as a simplification of measuring a forecheck. There's so many cool things that. But I'm just dying to be able to look at quickly um, because I, what, I, what I hate, too, is that when we're trying to show these messages is that it takes so long to get the data right now. Often the event or the moment has passed and it loses its, its <laughs> impact, if that makes sense. Yes. No, absolutely. It's a uh, yeah, time is of the essence in that regard. But OK, we've been talking enough a lot about defense. I kind of want to shift to the other end of the way <laughs> because, you know, while uh, it's great that the Blue Jackets are second in goals against and actually in expected goals <laughs> against, which leads Clay's credence to this is legit. Um, they're 25th in expected goals for. Uh, they're 24th in terms of both power play and 515 scoring per minute. And so, um, if we want to sort of transition this from like, this is a, a cool story and a fun subplot to, okay, this is a legitimately dangerous team that beyond a goalie just being remarkably hot can actually make a lot of noise in the playoffs. Um, we need to start looking at how this team is going to extract more offense out of the team and more goals. And so I guess from your perspective, I'm really interested in, and we kind of touched on it at the start in terms of like, um, you know, the shockingly low shooting percentages and how that has started to regress a little bit. But, you know, this team also doesn't generate a lot of chances either. I think they're near the bottom as well in terms of, uh, the high danger chances they accumulate themselves. And so, you know, part of it is certainly when you lose a guy of Panarin's caliber beyond just the fact that, you know, he leads the league in five on five points and, and whatnot, like just his playmaking in terms of making other players better and getting the puck in space to them. We've seen that effect on Cam Atkinson, but I'm curious, like how much of this is the personnel where it's like, you can only fake it for so long. And if you don't have the horses, you're not going to be able to generate enough offense. And how much of it is truly that chicken and egg sort of thing where it's like for a team to be so good defensively, there's going to be a natural uh, equilibrium by sacrificing a bit of offense because you're going to be uh, not necessarily fully unloading your team on the rush. Maybe you're going to be coming back a little bit more sagging back. And so maybe that's going to lead to the lower offensive numbers. How much of it is one and how much of it is the other, do you think? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a little bit of both. I think as far as the the, the focus on defensive play, I mean, we saw um, there was a moment this season where John Tortorella told us that he went to Seth Jones and Zach Wierenski and said, I know I've said we need to be responsible defensively. If you guys want to go, go, jump. Right. Um, and, and that's when Zach just started scoring goals like a monster. So um, we know that that is part of it. Um, I, I do think that... Now, look, there is no replacing Artemi Panarin. He is an elite talent. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, one of the things I'm watching this year is, is how close are guys to last season's totals. Um, you know, a guy like Boone Jenner, he's he's at 50% of his goals and 40% of his assists last year. Um, but where, where they're hurting is, you know, a Cam Atkinson. And, and I think that here... Um, First of all, he has been injured. He just got back from injury, and he looks a lot more like himself. Mm -hmm. I think this team did get kind of caught up a little bit too much mentally in the trying to prove something. We talked about that being a bonus at the start of this, but I think some of these guys got too in their heads about we've got to stick it to everyone who doesn't believe in us. Um, and, and, and it just got to They were gripping their sticks. They weren't playing their normal way. Cam Atkinson finally came out and said, he's like, and again, I, I had faith Cam could at least get close to 30, if not exceed 30 this year, because he's done it without Panarin as well. Um, and he said, you know, I have to basically relearn 
how I was playing before I played with Panarin. And since he's come back in three games, he's got three goals and two assists. Maybe that break helped him. But he's way off. Um, Josh Anderson, who is just such a talented, talented player, has been hurt, um, came into camp um, not fully recovered from the shoulder injury he took in the playoffs against Boston. And, and he's been out now for over a month. Um, so he's got literally just two goals when he put up 27 last year. That's a big blow. Yep. So I, I think I think they have talent. I think that the talent that they have, the highest, the higher end of that talent has been underperforming. Um, there have been some pleasant surprises in the talent coming up. Um, Emil Bemstrom is kind of starting yes. to find his footing. Um, Alexander Texier is is doing all right, but he's now, of course, injured because everyone who's on the Blue Jackets <laughs> has to be injured at some point. Um, Eric Robinson has been a nice surprise. Um, you've even got, you know, Ger- Nathan Gerby putting up three goals and five assists. Yep. So I think that the system is impacting it. I think some of the higher end talents have underperformed. Maybe they're rediscovering their game. Um, and again, they're just going to have to let that defense play because a lot of times, you know, and again, I talk about, you know, the fans get so excited. Oh, we won. I'm like, yeah, but all of the goals came from your defense. So, <laughs> yep. you know, it's. Um, but again, if this is how they want to win, that's great. And I think this is what's going to be really interesting to watch is this team at the deadline now, because all signs point to that if Yarmo tries to make a move, it's going to be on the offensive side of the ice. This is a team that does not have a lot of assets for a trade. I mean, right. they spent a lot last year. And how much of an impact can you even get for a moderate Price, so I'm really curious to see um, how that goes down. Yeah, the Atkinson point is is so fascinating because you know he clearly scores 40 goals last year playing with Panarin and has a career season, and I think. Uh, expecting that again was not going to happen. Clearly, sure. I, I think there's a middle ground there. You know, his first five on four, five goal this year came on December fifth, and and now he's got six and eleven games since then with a injury kind of uh, sandwiching those two two runs, but. I think the point of like when you play with a guy like Panarin who handles the puck so much through the neutral zone and getting it into the offensive zone, it's a lot of like, just get out of the way and be in the right spot. And when the puck comes to you, shoot. And for a a natural shooter like Atkinson, that's, I'm sure, like a lovely spot to be in. Now, when he's playing with different players who do less in terms of creating that way and attracting attention, it's like part of it is the defensive attention that's additional that he's going to have to deal with now. And part of it is like, I guess you're right. Just kind of rewiring yourself to play a different way and maybe carry the puck more yourself. And so that's going to be fascinating to follow. What I do like now is it does feel like, and this kind of goes into that uh, sort of like player type perspective where you're matching, uh, Mm -hmm. matching passers with shooters and trying to create a symbiotic relationship where both guys can thrive. And, you know, right now they've got Nyquist playing with Bjorkstrand, for example, they've got, Bemstrom and Wen- Wenberg and so it feels like I like that from like the goals haven't come necessarily yet but pairing those types of player types together is I think a recipe for success because it like it's very easy to track it from like this guy loves to pass and this guy loves to shoot so let's just put those two guys together and sometimes hockey can be that simplistic yeah, I, I agree. And I've, I've liked seeing, I've really liked Gus Nyquist's game. I didn't know a ton about him before he came to Columbus, but he is a guy who, and again, he's not going to, you know, light your hair on fire, but he is a guy who every game, if you watch him in isolation, he's going to do something really creative and really, really smart to create a chance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what, I, what I've been intrigued by too, you know, we talk about on the good side offensively, um, at some point I'll, I'll write this, but um, Pierre-Luc Dubois was my case study, right? Because this is the only player in the entire NHL who had only ever played with Artemi Panarin. And so when you talk about the impact of losing that player, this was the guy to watch. And he's had a little bit of a lull in his overall play and, and to the eye test, in my opinion, of late. But this guy has only upped his game this year. And I think that's just a fascinating thing, first of all, just to watch and experience. And I think it's a great sign for this club because while everyone has acknowledged and and there's some relearning on the Atkinson side of the impact of losing Panarin to see Dubois adjust at his age as the future number one center for this club, that is a hugely positive sign for this group. 
Yeah. Well, he leads the team. I think he's pacing them. Part of this is Bjorkstrand, Atkinson, and Wernicke right. all, all missing time, but he's pacing them with like, he's on pace for 25 goals and 60 yeah. points or something. And it's like, right. uh, on the one hand, it's it's crazy that a team is in a playoff spot with those figures when <laughs> there's there's like a handful of players that already have 30 goals and 70 points. And so, right. you know, it, it's, I guess it's all relative, but certainly, I mean, especially without like the benefit of, um, you know, Cushier power play production for example like his 515 goal scoring is still there i think and it's important to remember he's 21 years old and so i think not that this was ever um in question or a dilemma where he had to prove it this year but right. it is a different scenario playing without panarin and and the fact that he has looked as, as good as he is i think should alleviate any like even if it was a 0.1 percent concern about <laughs> uh fully committing to them this summer because that is like beyond the goalies that we talked about earlier like signing pierre-luc dubois to omega long-term deal this summer as an RFA is like the only sort of big crossroads moment for the Blue Jackets front office this summer. Totally. And, you know, what's a good sign there, too, is um, I, I don't know that talks have officially begun, but both sides have said they're willing to talk. There's none of this. No, we have to wait till the off season type thing. Um, you know, and I think this is this is an important negotiation for the Blue Jackets. They they tend to be strong handed, um, as Yarmo Kekalainen has said. You know, we know that the player is going to leverage everything they can when when they're UFAs. So we're going to leverage everything we can when we have control. Um, I'd love to see this get done quickly and smoothly um, and just cement things because again he's just proven to really and I think it's fun for him too because this is a kid who even saved tweets from when he was drafted over (laughs) Jesse Puyo Yarvey he he takes a little bit from motivation so I I think to keep him um, connected and engrossed in the core of this team is important And, and I think again it's great that he's been able to prove um, that he belongs here. Now, the trickier one's going to be Josh Anderson, um, because mm-hmm. after this year, yeah. you know, and again, I, I think he is. I think he is a special, special player. Um, he's he hates this comparison. He gets mad whenever we say it, but he's he's Tom Wilson esque right. without maybe some of the questionable, more questionable hits that have happened in the past. Um, but this season really hurts him, and he's got just one more RFA year. Um, I can certainly appreciate from the player's perspective that he's going to want to go as short of term as possible because he wants a prove-it year. This isn't going to be it for him. Um, but the club is, of course, going to want some of those UFA years. And this yes. was a negotiation that went uh, – it struggled <laughs> a bit um, yep. the last time these two sides came together. So, um, again, just a special player, and I'm really uh, interested – to see how that one shakes out. Well, and the funny thing is, I think when you look at a player that has done what he's done over the past couple of years, and then the year he's having this year, shooting like 1.7% or yeah. whatever he yeah. is, you know, normally as an analyst, you'd look at that and, and you'd go, all right, other teams should be identifying this as a bylaw and see if they can steal him. But just based on the way, um, not only that he played last year, but I think the way the Blue Jackets approach the expansion draft, for example, where they mm-hmm. like made a point of going out and protecting him and how they clearly feel about him internally. It feels like that's that's not even really like as as bad as this has been. I, I don't think this is a scenario where he can be had. And so it's like a, it's a fun little kind of pipe dream for other teams to be like, oh, let's go and steal this guy and he's going to score 30 goals for us next year. But I just I think they, they realize what's going on here and that, um, you know, the injuries are one thing and, and just kind of it seems like it's a season from hell from him. And I guess, you know, when you're spinning it forward and thinking about uh, the trade deadline and, and offensive boosts you know both him and Texier potentially coming back and and scoring the way we think they can based on their talent level is big I think the other thing is um you know the draft capital is is certainly concerning because they didn't pick till the fourth round last year and I think you know when you don't have your second and third to begin with like they did this do this summer you probably don't want to be giving away your first unless you really feel like it's going to be a deal that moves the needle but whether it's you know guys like Toffoli or even guys with term on their deals like Zucker or Palmieri like there's if you need scoring help especially on the wing and mm-hmm. that's like the one thing you want as a need come the deadline because that seems like that's <laughs> sort of the the most readily available uh player prototype yeah for sure and you know a, a couple people have said that too that if some of these guys can come back it's it's almost like a deadline move without having to spend anything um and, and it, it it would be nice and i think particularly anderson of course will come back motivated to reaffirm the kind of player that he is um yeah, I just, I just hope that it, it again. It, it got contentious last time. I just hope that 
it, it, it's going to be interesting is all I can say. Mm, yeah. No, I, I certainly can see how uh, both sides would probably draw a hard line from like, especially with the way this year has gone, where I think Anderson's camp would be like, let's throw this year out the window and Columbus would be like, well, we can't because it's the most recent sample. And so it's yeah. going to be fascinating. But, you know, from Columbus perspective in terms of, you know, last year, um, I don't think we're going to see that again from like a crossroads sure. perspective of, of uh, having all these big questions and figuring out how you want to approach the deadline. It's clearly a different scenario this year, but I do think if things keep going this way and I think their schedule coming up here is pretty, pretty cake and they can keep this run going. Um, how aggressive they get is going to be really fascinating because on the one hand, I think there is, there's a formula here where, you know, we've seen it with Islanders most recently where you can yeah. win this way and you don't necessarily need uh, an offensive infusion. But at the same time, um, you know, they're in the Metro division and I don't know if you know this, but uh, it's pretty good this year. And uh, I've heard this. <laughs> so, you know, it's crazy. Like they're the fifth team in the Metro right now and they'd be leading the Pacific. And I, I mean, six of the top 13 or teams or whatever in the league are all in that division. And so it's, it's going to be tough because as good as, as I'm sure is like, um, high they feel about themselves and, you know, this 15 and 15, two and four stretch they're on was certainly like lead you to believe that they view themselves as a, not only like playoff bubble team, but a team that can make some noise. It's, it's tough to like also move, uh, premium assets, especially what you did last, last trade deadline, uh, considering how it's like much it's not it's not a foregone conclusion by any means that they would actually make it just because of how good the teams around them are as well. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, it it made as, as it was highly entertaining and wonderful to come. Um, yeah. But it made sense that if that was if there was going to be a year to risk a lot, last year was the year. I mean, that was an apex of talent um, for Columbus, even before the acquisitions. So I agree. I don't think this this year is that year. Um, and I think Yarmo is smart enough to know the degree to which he should spend. Um, and maybe he doesn't spend at all. But um, with no disrespect to this club, I think that the core is there, but there's still hmm. there are a couple years from the next time that it's time to say, should we really go all in? Because I, it, I just don't think it's here yet. Now watch them like do something insane here and I'll be proven wrong. But <laughs> Well, that's why I think a player like Palmieri makes a lot of sense because he's got that extra year in his deal. And I think, uh, you know, stylistically he would fit a lot from that scoring punch, but also uh, not just necessarily being like a, a pure empty calorie scorer either. But right. I said the same thing about the Islanders and it's funny because both those teams are a very similar boat where like, they're not in the most sure-footed position right now, but they do a lot of things well and should make the playoffs, and they have similar needs, and they also both have a ton of cap space, and so if they do really feel like an opportunity presents itself, they can get creative. So it'll, be, it'll make for a fascinating uh, trade deadline because there are so many teams that are in it, and, and I'm curious to see how that goes. But you know, for the Blue Jackets, and I think this is... Uh, to put a ball in a kind of full circle after all the players they lost this summer, I think the reason why there was reason for optimism beyond all the players that are already in place was this team's cap situation right now is mm -hmm. so financially flexible. I think if you look after the summer of 2021, so after next season, um, Cam Atkinson and Gustav Nyquist are the only two players they'll have under contract that are over 30 years old and so this is a yeah. team that is either in its prime or heading towards it and they don't when you get contracts like Dubinsky's off the books and and so on and so forth you're not going to have anything where you're wondering oh this is money that we're not getting value for and so it's a great spot to be in now you got to make the most of it obviously but um I think like you're right in terms of evaluating where they currently stand in the league's hierarchy. I'm sure Yarmo is kind of looking at like that range of summer of 2021 where they're right. going to have so much money and a lot of these young players are going to be either as good as they are now or even better. And that's probably going to be the more um, optimal opportunity and, and sort of time frame to strike in. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the names we mentioned just quickly, but Bemstrom and Texier, you know, when they're when they're really comfortable, Andrew Peak um, has been a revelation on the back end. Just how quickly his game has elevated to an NHL level. Um, a lot of you know that's been the silver lining of this whole thing too. I mean, at one point this team had eleven players that were on the opening night roster out due to injury, and it, that's what's been incredible is that this this run has continued with sometimes close to ten guys out of the lineup, including a starting goaltender. Um, and I think that 
I'm certainly not sitting here saying, well, they're fine. They don't need any talent. Look, they're perfect. But it's been nice to see some of these guys step up. Um, I think of Vladislav Gavrikov, who's been on the roster all year. But, you know, he I don't think he came touted highly enough um, for what he's turning into defensively also. And um, I mentioned Eric Robinson. You know, Kevin Stenland showed a, a much more of an upside than I had seen from him in the past. So, again, to all of that point, these guys are going to be at their peak in that window you mentioned and that's going to be i think the next time to really to go all in yeah well summer 2021 we're going to be celebrating elvis merzlinkins's uh second straight vesna trophy and uh, <laughs> columbus blue jackets will be making some big moves that's uh you, you heard it here first on the pdo cast allison this was uh this was a blast i'm really glad we got to do this and deep dive this team because uh you know i hope we did it justice there's so many layers to this and uh you know things could certainly go off the rails i think uh the pdo cast hasn't uh has jinx teams in the past and you know they could go two four and 15 and and really uh convert that but uh for now it's uh it's fun in columbus and I think both the fans and the players are sort of relishing, um, not necessarily proving people wrong, but just kind of showing that uh, just because players left this summer, they weren't, they shouldn't have been written off. And so uh, you're doing a great job covering this. I'm really uh, enjoying your work this year and uh, let people know now where, uh, where they can check that out and where they can follow you online. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you can find me at The Athletic. You can search um, under Columbus or the Blue Jackets or my name. And I'm also on Twitter at Allison L. Beautiful. Well, Allison, this was a blast, and uh, we'll make sure to do this again soon, okay? I always love it. This, these are some of my favorite conversations, is bringing the nerddom and the real-life perspective together perfectly and beautifully like you always do. This was a blast. Talk soon. Take care. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast. Thank you.